Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio. Reporting from the basement of the Dairy Civic Center, this is CM Alexander with the news. On the community calendar, the Great Dairy Bull begins today. This yearly town-wide scavenger hunt takes citizens to every corner of the township. I finally gave up after I couldn't solve this clue. You're on time for two, but early for three. Find me where the early comes presently. If anyone solves it, I hope you remember to yell, Bool, the end! You're listening to Dairy Public Radio. This is Dairy Public Radio. Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio, a bi-weekly Stephen King book club podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Joshua Kahn, alongside CM Alexander. Hello, everyone. And Benjamin Graham. Hey, hey, constant readers. And today we are back with our Patreon selection of Lisey's story from Robin Nickerson, and we are covering through chapter 11 with CM leading our discussion. CM, take it away. Thanks, Josh. We left things off with Lisey finally deciding to call Norris Ridgwick, but he just got married, so our, he's our on secondary main character. Boo! <laughs> Did anybody else boo? I booed when it, I got no Norris. A, it was a huge bummer. Yeah. I was like, oh, what a bait and switch. We, we don't even get like Clutterbuck that right. much. Right. I, I was happy for him. But. <laughs> I mean, yes. Yeah, good for him, I guess. After the state that he almost found himself in needful things, he deserves yes. to be happy. So Deputy Andy Buttercup is here. <laughs> she tells him a slightly edited version of events and sort of reluctantly tells him about Woodbody. Buttercluck tells her that he wants the evidence... <laughs> And she needs to put the cat's body in the freezer and someone would be by to pick it up. And he's like, oh, too bad that you didn't take pictures before you cleaned up the mess. And when she's like, what the hell? He tells her to calm down, which is a great strategy to tell anybody ever. <laughs> my my note says that uh, Fluttercuck doesn't make her feel, her or I feel any safer. Right. <laughs> That's like that, that how I sum that up. I was like, you make me nervous, Andy. Well, and after that, he's like, it's okay. And he, you know, you, you were upset. Anybody would have done the same thing. I Try leading with that, dude. Anyway. <laughs> so he finishes by telling her that he's going to post a cop on the road by her house to keep an eye on things when there aren't any emergencies. But really, guys like this are content to just kill cats and put them in your mailbox and leave you weird notes. And no way that is an escalation to any other behavior. You should be good. Why our society <laughs> ever was like this baffles me. <laughs> This isn't an old book either. I know. No, this is what, 2006? <laughs> I think so. Maybe? I think it takes place in 2006. Maybe. Or around there. So 20 minutes later, Deputy Beckman comes to collect and Lisey, Lisey finds him hilarious. And I think it's the awful outrageousness of the situation coupled with this guy's extreme politeness. I have a question for you. Did you just call him Beckman? Isn't that? Beckman, Yeah. How did you did say I, it? I wrote Bachman in my notes. No, it's B-E-O-C-K-M-A-N. <laughs> Why brain, do I remember I'm that? So, my brain filled in or maybe autocorrected to Bachman when I got <laughs> type something nonsensical. Uh, you were giving me such a look that I'm like, did I skip a part? No, I was, I was baffled that I misread a name <laughs> so obviously. 
Okay, so Lisey, basically, she's just to the point where she's going to enter that hysterical laughter phase. That's how stressed out she is. And she doesn't want to hear her laughing. And she starts thinking about something else that kind of helps her get control over herself for reasons that do not make any sense initially. And that is Good Ma's Cedar Box. Nothing about Good Ma seems comforting to me. We have not gotten into Good Ma yet. Mm. I'm wondering if we do, because so much of what we read today is all about Scott's childhood. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But we get little hints that, like, Lissy's childhood wasn't great either. Right. Not only did she have all of this contention between all of her sisters, there has been a lot of references to near the end, Good Ma kind of going off the deep end, mm-hmm. uh, dealing with um, later on, she says, like, raving dementia. Yeah. Yeah. I'm wondering if we ever get into that because she seems very important because this cedar box is like a talisman to Lucy. She's she becomes literally obsessed with finding it, searching the attic, searching the a spare bedroom, the basement, the attic again. (laughs) She, She becomes like obsessed with it, and I also bet that the weird Pillsbury best rug that she floats around in in the first section it it seems to match the afghans yeah sorry Mm. the what africans yes (laughs) the i know we've talked about the language in this book and most of it i got behind that's one i couldn't yeah (laughs) like it just it seemed too um generic for me i think when everything else seemed like original it seemed very... It was too normal? Yeah, I you guess. You needed a dumb word instead? Yes, I needed a stupid... <laughs> okay. I needed more vowels than consonants. <laughs> so the cedar box is something that she inherited from her mom over 35 years ago, and she stores mementos in it. And she's pretty sure that it's in the attic, and it wasn't until I was rereading this section that I realized that the list of items she then describes as being in the attic exists just solely to show us that she's probably right. She knows exactly what's up there, but as we find out, it is not because it's part of this pool, as we'll come to understand. So Beckman leaves, telling her she doesn't need to worry. She's super safe. <laughs> and it's about right here that I started noticing for the first time as we're reading these this, these really beautiful phrases in this book, because we start the next chapter off with the words, the exhausted mind is obsession's easiest prey. Oh. Some beautiful writing in this book. Let's talk about Lisey's adventure in trying to find the cedar box. Yeah, it's, it is a, a big runaround to try to find this, which I do think it's funny that I think she's right. Last time she did see it, it was in the attic. Mm-hmm. So I don't think she's making a mistake here. Uh, I do like that. Uh, we get a repeat of the lawnmower scenario yeah. where she thinks the, the vacuum <laughs> is dueling. And gets so excited that she trips and falls. And this is when she's finally down in the cellar, I think. Mm. And she's like, I, if I had fallen anywhere else, I could have cracked my head on the staircase and probably killed myself. But <laughs> it does have the effect of clearing her head for her. So she can finally think again because she's sort of just fallen into this kind of manic state where she's spending hours in each room searching for this thing. It went on just long enough that I was trying to figure out what the point was. If that makes sense. Yeah. Mm. I would like uh, all of these pieces are setting up the story 
maybe not the current story, maybe stories that happened several years ago and around, because that's what this book does. Mm -hmm. But I was very curious, and I feel like it. Pay, I feel like it paid itself off. Yeah, I, and that's why I mentioned I. She goes through that list of things, and mm -hmm. I think it's just all here to show us this is this is something that was set in motion mm -hmm. before Scott died, like deeply set yeah. in motion. So she kind of gives up for the time being and just sort of decides that, well, maybe somebody working on the house or somebody, someone we had in here doing some work at some point took it because, you know, these people are rich and they won't miss this box. It did bother me. Yeah, I didn't so like there's that. There's a few times <laughs> in the in, over the course of these chapters where she is looking for something and her immediate thought is to blame the help <laughs> for stealing it. And I'm like, no, really reminding us that these are uh, this is a multimillionaire. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> That could probably afford private security. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> so she finally falls asleep and she is woken up by the phone ringing and it is her other sister, Canty. Darla had let her know what was going on and she's checking in with Lisi. And as they're talking, Lisi finally remembers Amanda's notebook. Before we get to the notebook, I cannot stand Lisi's fucking sisters. They're <laughs> Oh my rough. God, there's so much. I mean, it kind of what Ben mentioned earlier with the the good ma illusions we've gotten. Mm -hmm. I am kind of hoping in the next section after this that we get the full wraparound of uh, the uh, what is there uh, Debauer the uh, Debusher Debusher. I'm, I really want to. I really want all the information on the Debusher girls and that story because it sounds. It sounds very simple, but it sounds like there's a lot of potential for nuance. It would be interesting if we never got it. I could Any also like, very I could see much it going see that. Because there's enough hints that you can draw the conclusion. Mm -hmm. Like, I feel pretty confident that if we just took what we know now, we could piece together Lisi's childhood pretty close. And is it like just sort of if you have those two things, it's like, oh, and now here's another sad childhood montage. <laughs> <laughs> Which, I, I mean, I'd be happy either there way. There are a lot of sad child montages yeah, there, oh, oh, we'll get to them. All <laughs> right. So for right now, the, the things that are important about this section after she's having this conversation with her sister we get some clues we hear scott's voice tell her that he left her a note a bool we get reference to the yum yum tree and paul's bool and she's looking through the notebook and she starts to find all of these clues she starts looking through it and she's just kind of having negative thoughts about her sister yeah. <laughs> uh, and then her sister's notes end and it is mostly blank until like she says two-thirds of the way through there is a single page with just hollyhocks mm -hmm. written on it and she flips back and forth between that page and the start and is certain positive that they are not the same handwriting. Well, and I, I think the hollyhocks is Amanda's handwriting, but there's another note at the in the in the like margin of the very end yeah, cover. Yeah, on the very end. Yeah, fourth station. Look under the bed and that is, is in Scott's is writing. Scott's handwriting, which is Can impossible. <laughs> Depends on how old that notebook is. Why would Amanda have had it? Good question. <laughs> yeah. Okay. There I can't think of any circumstances where I could be told to look under the bed and not be filled with horrible <laughs> unease. I don't ever want to hear those words. I don't ever want uh, anybody. Yeah, to, we've seen you, Pet cemetery. If you went into a haunted house and one of the things you had to do was look under Crawl the bed. Crawl under a bed? Yeah, I would no. die. I love it. <laughs> I Fun fact about me as a kid. 
got under everything. I crawled <laughs> under anything that my little body could fit under. I one time got stuck under a car. Gosh, <laughs> oh my God. I, it was fun. <laughs> Sure. Uh, Yeah, and I've hit under my bed a million times. Creepy child you were. Lisey finds one more clue that helps her, and it's two words printed on the back cover. Mein Gott. She thinks she knows what she's supposed to do next, and she's remembering a time before they were married when they went on this trip, and they were under the yum-yum tree, and Scott was talking about Paul and Boole hunts. So we finally are starting to understand what the stations of the Boole are. Would one of you like to describe this describe germany just the next uh he god this is so fucking (laughs) difficult it's should we take a sec to just talk about how this book deals with chronology yeah can we do that so that people listening don't think i've never led an episode (laughs) (laughs) no like we can't be blamed because i felt this the first episode uh last episode Mm -hmm. i felt like I, we finished recording, and I was like, I don't know that I followed our conversation. <laughs> because everything is so disjointed, and it is memories within memories within memories all nested within each other. And I was like, it's it's kind of cool. I like it until there's a part, I don't know if we're at it, but she's remembering being in bed with Scott at, in the Antlers mm-hmm. uh, in, where is it, New Hampshire? Yeah, everything with no, the, the Antlers oh, is oh, in, the antlers is in yes. New Hampshire. Yeah. Everything with the Antlers in Germany is, or no, I'm sorry, everything with the Antlers and then that winter mm-hmm. night in December is like memories dipping into memories, coming back to present day, dipping into a memory of a memory. Yeah, it's <laughs> great. But the way there, there's this moment where Lissy uh, is thinking coherence is beyond her at this moment. Mm-hmm. It is the point where she is a little further down into remembering. She's really close from stepping behind the purple curtain. And she thinks coherence is beyond me because I can't, I can't see everything all at once. It's like smoke rising into the air, disappearing and reappearing. That's how we all feel. <laughs> and that, it's such a cool way to think of her circling mm-hmm. this huge, huge idea that is Booyah Moon that she she can't let herself look directly at right. it. Because if she tries to look right at it She'll right away. And crazy. <laughs> exactly. I think that's such a cool. That's what the book she is doing to us. She almost Urist. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This is if Stan could have done this, then oh my god, yeah. it would have been like five hundred. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's just a, it makes the whole book feels like the elephant under the blanket. That's the feeling I got. Where you get the shape of what's coming. But once you actually get to get to it, yeah. you're surprised. It's great. The thing that I love, it's it's in my notes somewhere and I can't find it. The the line you're talking about, the second part of that line also fascinated me, which was the that the comprehension is impossible, but understanding will come if it has to. And mm-hmm. I also think that's insane. Mm-hmm. Knowing that I'm gonna have a whole world thrown open to me and I just got to understand what presents itself for understanding and I cannot expect more. And I was like, that's the description of this book. 
Yeah, I, hands down. I want our listeners to know we followed and understand the story <laughs> more than it might sound like it. No, it's and we'll just do hard our best to talk about as it. we're yes. talking it's, about it. Yeah, so that's please why bear it's with so us. Great. It's not difficult to read. It is as readable as any king, right. in mm. my opinion. Yeah, it's just the way it is presented. <laughs> it is over and over again. Here's a phrase that you know is important, and just as Lissy's about to be like. Oh, this is what this means. A phone rings <laughs> every time, and she, and the, and she we gets don't pulled always away return from to it. that. We return to another memory that's going to lead to that. Yeah, it's wild. So, what we're kind of at now, and you guys jump in if I've passed any. Oh, I will have no way of knowing. It's cool. <laughs> we we get a lot of this stuff under the yum yum tree. Because Scott and Lisi took this trip to New Hampshire. They went to the Antlers. It's like a lodge or something. And it was in October. But they had this freak October snowstorm. So they get snowed in. They end up having to stay two days. And the guy there is like, you guys, unique moment. Like, this is going to be so cool. I'm going to give you some snowshoes and pack a picnic for you. And you should just go have a winter hike. Like, once in a lifetime chance, there will be nobody else around you. So they do that, and they end up under this willow tree, which Lisi names the yum yum tree. And I actually love that because it reminds me of if anybody plays Yoshi yarn, I just always think mm. yum yum. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's here that Scott starts to tell Lisi, God, I hope I'm doing this right. It's here that Scott starts to tell Lisi that his dad would cut himself to get out. What we're going to hear a lot about the bad gunky. But that wasn't always enough. And he tells her about a day that he put Scott on the bench in the hall. So we're two memories deep and we get interrupted by Deputy Alston coming to take away the dead cat and program Lisey's cell phone, which she will never use or speak of again. <laughs> so don't think that that's a good moment. Yeah, that really made me uh, go, wait, when the fuck I... was this book written again? Well, and I kept like thinking, did I miss where she dropped her phone or something? Nope. And it's not with her. She just, but then later on, you realize that's not in her plan. Oh, and also judge her for smoking and make sure that she takes a few sensible precautions. If you just <laughs> use your head, lady, like locking your door, you're, you're going to be fine. Don't worry about it. And she just wants him to take the cat and leave so that she can find the bull. And so do I. <laughs> the scene is so long. It very, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, there we go back to the note on the back of the notebook, which is referencing their time in Germany, which she's she's leaving the yum yum tree memory to talk about Scott's teaching job there and their time in Germany. Let's talk about that. I really think the Germany stuff is very dark Ooh, and yes. very interesting. I can't help myself. This is the most mountain goats shit I've ever read. <laughs> This is the alpha couple uh, written out into a Stephen King book. So I loved this section. You need to send that to the mountain goats and let them know. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it's um, they they moved to Germany so Scott can begin uh, work as a professor. And he it, it kills him. He yeah. stops writing. He starts drinking uncontrollably, hiding it. And they're their relationship is basically reduced to fucking mm -hmm. all over their goddamn she house. A ugly fucking. Yeah. Too. Like not, not. It's it, a smokorama. It's, yeah, yeah. It is. It is. Uh, listen to the song. No children while you read this part hmm. and it, it matches up pretty good. 
they're I'm making a note. <laughs> this, I'll, I'll send you a playlist. Hell cool. yeah. What's important. One of the things that's important about Germany is that this bed that they had in Germany has become a symbol of those difficult times. And when they moved back, Scott insisted on shipping that bed home, which costs like almost as much as the bed itself. Mm. So that's going to come into play later. The other important moment in this is that under the yum yum tree, Scott had told her that they can never have kids. And if that's mm. going to be a problem for her, they should not get married. And he doesn't really go further than that right now, but we're going yeah, to circle it's, back this to us. memory is him yes. explaining why he yes. can't have kids. And it's in Germany that she starts. I, I just liked this because she starts to feel the emptiness. And I think part of that is because it's supposed to be you know, the two of them together mm-hmm. as this unit. And he's kind of, he, he can't be there with her right now. He's sort of gone. And she, she accepts that in that moment under the yum yum tree. But now she thinks she didn't fully understand that the years pass and time has weight. And I was like, yeah, a great phrase. And she kind of ends that thought thinking sometimes she wishes she never met him. And then she's like, no, I don't wish that. She's like, you know, sometimes I do. I still love it, loved him, but sometimes, yeah, I feel that way. Yeah. Um, I, can I just, mm-hmm. I said listen to no children. Alpha Rat's Nest is way better. Listen okay. to Alpha Rat's Nest. Okay. Like, yeah, okay. <laughs> so like I said, that bed represents this time for them and he had it shipped back. So it's like, oh, did he know that that was going to be a station of the bull? And I'm not sure that we ever necessarily find out how far back that planning went or if it was just, you know, happened to be there and it was a convenience. It has to be. I have a I have a real wild kind of uh, theory about Scott. Um, I don't think this is the best time. Okay, we'll save it. Well, there's something later on that. I don't know. I I think it has to be because. He, they paid all that money to mm-hmm. ship it to a barn. Yes. It never made it in the house. It was never talked about bringing it into the house. It arrived from Germany, went straight into the barn. So that is the bed that she needs to look under. And I had spent all this freaking time diving into memories, like waiting, like the the back of my head. I guess I had this cloud of look under the bed hanging over. <laughs> and it just happened so quickly and no issues at all. She's like, and then she looks under the bed and there's... Ma, good Ma Cedar box. <laughs> we get interrupted again by Darla calling. And I just mentioned this because it gives us more of the sister dynamics because, you know, they're they're all calling Lisey, who is the youngest, uh, and she's the one who sort of has to wrangle them all and take care of them. I like that she just at a certain point is like, I cannot pretend to care about this conversation. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I'm going to say all the things that she wants to hear, and then I have to move on. Yeah, she's like just giving her these normal responses in her in her head, thinking, just shut the fuck <laughs> up. And, and it also, this moment gives us insight into how Amanda's condition is developing, which is unchanged. And she's being fed through a tube and still not talking. What's in the box, guys? Fucking so much Brand stuff. Pitt's wife's how, head. Yep. How big is this fucking box? It's got uh, a cake topper. It's got... It's Mary Boxen. See, I... What? Instead of Mary Poppins, that was horrible. What? I what thought it was. I didn't follow I, that at all. Nope, that didn't work. That, that didn't work. That at didn't all. work at all. They can't all be bangers, Sam. It's <laughs> oh cool. Oh my god. Um, <laughs> this box is bigger on the inside, is what she's trying to say. Um, uh, it's no. Mary's Tardis. There it is. Sure. 
keep trying. Why is it Mary? Mary Poppins. <laughs> she reaches That's in. the part you couldn't let go of. Why is that the part you couldn't let go of? Anyway. Oh, proud of you, Sam. Uh, no, I just, I, I pictured it as like a, a footlocker size. I okay, have this black footlocker yes, from when my dad sense. was in the army. And that's kind of what in my head it looked mm-hmm. like. Okay. Yeah. Kind of like a hope chest. Yeah. Yeah. It's all this shit in here is tiny. It's pictures. It's a piece of wedding cake. It's wedding cake toppers. It's a piece of the Afghan. Mm. It's a, a menu that she took from the antlers. So I don't think there are a ton of things in it. I think they're I all guess, small yeah. keepsake mm. kind of things. Well, the way she's described as carrying it because she, yeah. she carries it like up. She protectively against her body. I just pictured it as like mm-hmm. beefy, hefty. Yeah, it can be whatever we each wanted to be, I think. <laughs> it's a beauty of reading. Thanks, CM. There you go. My gift to you guys to make up for the things I said a minute ago. <laughs> Mary Knox. <laughs> Don't repeat that. Now no, I it's funny now. I can't cut it out. <laughs> now I like it. it. Oh, Josh said it, so now you like it. <laughs> oh. I get it. <laughs> <No>. Oops. <laughs> All right. So she is very overwhelmed with feelings about Scott's death. That she thought that she had already managed and moved on from because it's been two years since he died. And she's got to take a break from going through this box. So she goes to Scott's study to get some water from the bar sink. And she she starts to get really angry here that Scott left her. And ooh, he lit out for the territories. That Did you guys line. catch that? Yeah. Okay. That, Talisman. That, that is just a phrase, though. Is <laughs> Yeah, that's just a turn of phrase. I didn't. I've never yeah, heard that for phrase. The, yeah, for the territory really? by yeah, Stephen it's, King. <laughs> it's yeah. I've never heard that in another context. That's so interesting. Because yeah. I yeah, I made a note of that. It's too. like an old western like cowboy thing. Ah, uh, all right. But I also think he uses that intentionally. I mean, that's my thing. He does capitalize territories, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. which I once we get to where we're going, we have some road. questions. Yeah. So anyway, we'll get Liz- there. Lisey trashes the study. She f- <laughs> yells, fuck you, Scott, and then bashes a bunch of shit, and it's amazing. It is cool. It felt appropriate for where she is. Like, she, she's she been repressing any grief, any moving on for these past two years. I felt good for her mm-hmm. that she was able to just do what she needed I to do. I haven't been tracking this, but is she going through all the stages of grief? Finally, because this is yeah, Maybe. finally, yeah, because be. later on, once she tears the curtain down, she says, I think it's the last line of uh, <laughs> our reading today is that she has to finish greet like finish more. Yes. Yeah. So it, it feels like this is the anger section <laughs> is finally coming out. It was well, and that's, you know, the very beginning. She kind of we were that's foreshadowed because she's put off going through his study. Yeah. The denial has been yeah. for two years. Yeah. So. Yeah. So after this uh, very wonderful outburst, she calms down a little and she makes her way through the rest of the contents of the box and the menu item is kind of helping her get back to that memory. There are these things in the box that are are almost like clues that are kind of triggering her. They took a trip, as I said, to the antlers. They got snowed in, and Scott explained the whole kids thing. I, I didn't mention earlier when we were talking about this, this part here. So he's telling her he's going to love her with all his heart, but he acknowledges that that kind of love can be a burden to a woman and he'll probably be an emotional pauper all his life but they'll also be rich 
And it, it was just the way he was like, here are the pros and cons of being with me. I, I just thought that was cool. He also tells her that he's crazy. He has delusions and visions. And the only difference between him and other crazy people is that he writes his down and people pay to read them. So he's like this kind of typical tortured artist thing. And I feel like this is the kind of situation only a woman in her 20s can be super into. Like me yeah. at Lucy's age here, <laughs> I'd be like, oh, do go on, you dark, moody boy. <laughs> but like me in yep. my 30s, I'm more like, oh, yeah, Scott, you're real special you're a special special guy but i forgot it i gotta yeah. i gotta go and then you hit 40 and you're like spend several years in therapy and then maybe i'll text you <laughs> so we come to understand scott's family history here with the landons who came over they used to be the landros they split into two types you guys want to talk about the gomers and the bad gunkies wow <laughs> what a cursed bloodline this family <laughs> so scott essentially says Everyone, inclusive of their family, either goes crazy violent from the bad gunky or they are just gone one day. Their bodies are there, but their minds are not, and they're just gone. Lisi realizes that those are the blood pools, the, what happens when you have the bad gunky and, and you have to cut. And she thinks of Amanda's history of cutting and her scars and questions Scott about the lack of his, but he doesn't seem to hear her. And he's just, he's diving into the past and we are diving right with him. This is the scene on the bench. Fuck. I'm so fucking hyped to talk about this scene. This was the scene I think I went from, this is a pretty good book, to holy fuck. <laughs> uh, because this this segment, when it switches to mm -hmm. Scott, this is the first time we're getting, we have a switch of narrators. Yeah! And Scott's story, it is so immensely terrifying. Yes. It fucks me up in a major way. <laughs> yeah. Because we come to with Scott at three years old on a bench in their hall. What did they say? It's like three feet like three tall. Feet, yeah. It is it is not a high bench, but he has been placed there by his father, and his father is screaming obscenities at him. Boy, howdy, trigger warnings, folks. Mm, um yeah. buckle up. He is screaming obscenities at him and saying, You jump, jump off, uh, do it. And as he is doing this, he is holding his older brother He's Paul. Six years old. Six years time, old. Yeah holding him in his arms and cutting him open with a pocket knife. Deeply. Uh-huh. Deep cuts. Very pointedly. Uh, to, to the point where he mentions blood stains on the floor. Like, not mm -hmm. only is this awful, it has happened over and over again. The thing that I want to talk about most is what makes him eventually jump. And it's because he's looking at Paul who is not making a sound as he's being cut into. And Scott jumps. He finally takes the jump off the bench when he looks into Paul's eyes and sees that Paul is giving him permission not to jump, no matter how much he's cut up. No matter if he dies, because his dad dies. threatens to cut his throat. Yeah. I, the only like light bit was that Scott yells, Geromino. <laughs> <laughs> that is cute. That was adorable. But yeah, this is 
a very upsetting scene. It, it is so jarring. It's jarring the shift in. I don't know if it's a shift in tone because the it's not like the rest of the book has been particularly light and happy. It's just the degree, the severity of violence is it, it felt like suddenly we're in a different book. It's uh it's a shift in recollection because everything we get from Lisi is so behind something mm-hmm. else behind this something is else. Clear. Scott is able to say this is clearly and exactly what happened to me and I think that's why it's extra jarring because Lisi's has been all over the place. Mm. But Scott's is a straight line to Traumaville. Two really impactful things during this scene, other than just what is happening, is that Scott is describing his dad to Lisi as no longer a man or a daddy, but just a blood bull with eyes. I hate it. And after he tells her that he jumps, he says, this hell will go on for another 2,500 days, seven endless years. And then he jumps, he gets his prize, which is a kiss. And his dad tells him he can take care of his brother now, which seems like a strange task to give a three-year-old, but we will come to understand how and why he does that. We leave this memory for a bit and Lisi's shocked reaction. And she asks, you know, how often did this happen? And he just says often. And she's like, well, was he drunk? He rarely drank. And then Scott starts telling her about how he and Paul were child prodigies. Yeah, they could read, write, and solve riddles at six and three. Yeah. That's, it's insane. So now we are going to get Paul's, one of Paul's good bulls. What? Is it because, can, is it not that they're prodigies? Is it because they can do it because they've seen the pool? Well, I kind of wonder I'm kind <laughs> a of lot of things I, I, about that. Yeah. It's kind I in my head, it's little column A, little column B, sure. because I feel like there's probably something special they about them. Can they can reach even get the there. pool yeah. because they have yeah. this, mm-hmm. at least Scott especially, has this special connection to the font of imagination or something. Mm-hmm. And then they're affected by the pool to increase that i don't i don't yeah, know i i think that sounds pretty close um i i did have noted like all the clues paul gave but for the sake of time we can just sure. kind of skip over that it's just it's a fun moment in the book if, if you guys aren't to that part yet that you know listeners it's great it, it explains kind of the setup of how these riddles work so that when we're mm-hmm. with lisi and hers we have a better understanding of it oh that it, the thing about this that it's a 16 bull hunt and it was the biggest they'd ever done. And mm-hmm. that's when he talks about it. It's another moment where Scott will go back into his, his child voice. Mm. And yeah, that's upsetting. It's, yeah. It's crazy. <laughs> they end it by taking communion kind of is how it's described <laughs> and yeah. making a wish. Cause that's what you do when you take communion, which I love. <laughs> and Scott wishes for the bookmobile to come. What does Paul wish for? That his dad would die and never come home. Yup. And Lisey asks a very important question. How did Paul, who was cut up so badly and all bloody, go to the store unnoticed as for part of this spool? And Scott reminds her that they're fast healers. And she asks if his dad killed Paul with a knife. 
And he says no with his rifle, but it's not what you think. And we're not going to get to find out more about that for a while. For so long. <sighs> so before we get to that point, we find out that Scott's dad died too. Uh, this was just <laughs> it, thrown in there the so fact casually. That it is just dropped on you. I missed it the and first then time. Not <laughs> mentioned. I missed it. Yes. That's crazy. That she asked, How how did your dad die? Did you kill your dad? And he says, I put an axe in his head and dumped him down the well. During a sleet storm. It reminded me of Dolores Claiborne. Yeah, it's very yeah. sure. I just want to point out that he, when he says this to her, they're not yet married and she still marries him. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you, it's very clear her household was no picnic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. She can't face the rest of this memory just yet. And she thinks to herself or to Scott in kind of a way. That if this is about saving Amanda, she loves her, but it's not worth it. She'll go back to that <laughs> hell for Scott, but not for anyone else. And then the phone rings. And it's Darla again, interrupting us. <laughs> she wants to make plans with Lisi for all three of them to have lunch when Canty's flight gets in, and then go up to see Amanda. So we just know at this point that the sisters are all on their way. Lisi gets off the phone and tries desperately to push away the rest of the memory under the yum-yum tree. She takes the box out to the barn to her office where she has a message. I know you guys are just dying to talk about this, so go for it. Wow. Uh, it is so horrifying because yes. she plays the voicemail and it's Dooley. And she <laughs> says, smuck you. And then from behind her, she hears a voice saying, that isn't nice. This... <gasps> Sucks. Sucks so bad. So bad. <laughs> I, the second this scene started, first of all, I was, uh, of course, reading in uh, the coffee shop, and the <laughs> second it said the voice came from behind her, mm -hmm. just like audibly gasped. I just and, did it. <laughs> and it, once it starts going, I thought, I'm like, if this goes the direction I think it could. I am going to have to put this book down for a while. And you bet, I bet you did. I bet you had to put it down. I I definitely took a break. Uh, it's bad. It, it it's, doesn't go exactly the way I thought it was, but it's not better. Yeah. No, it is. The first upsetting thing is that he looks like an ordinary dude. And she's so scared that she starts to faint, despite really not wanting to. And it's just so gross to me that the last thing that she's aware of as she's going down is him rushing to catch her after he'd commented that if she faints, it'll probably save him some trouble. Not the thing you want to hear no. before passing out. Mm -mm. And when she comes to, she's been handcuffed to the water pipe under the sink in Scott's study. Dooley is wiping her face with a damp cloth. He, throughout this, he's going to be very calm and polite which is terrifying. I don't know how you all feel about uh, this particular genre. I fucking hate home invasion like movies. Mm -hmm. uh, they upset me to a degree that I do not like the the hopelessness and the powerlessness mm -hmm. is so I I, I it, it's your horror. It gets under my skin mm -hmm. so much worse than a lot of stuff. And in this scene, it is just as intense as watching fucking funny games or bu some bullshit. Mm -hmm. it, so he, he also turns on the sound system, but no one is around. No cops, no neighbors. 
and she asks for water and considers giving his balls a tug, but he warns her, wait, that's, is that what I think it is? Yeah. Okay. Gra- like, grab him by the balls well, and she's like, going to like, that's not a, like, t- like that's rip not them like off. a sexy thing. No, that's no, not no, a no, euphemism. No, 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 no. Okay. He warns her that he does. Except in Canada, I think. <laughs> <laughs> they, say it on, they say it on letter, yeah, Give your balls a tug, tit fucker. <laughs> he has on steel toe boots and her hands don't. Mm-hmm. And as this is going on, Lisey thinks that Dooley reminds her of Gerd Allen Cole, the guy who shot Scott. Do you guys think there's something to that? Am I reading too much into it? It's just. Why there's a that? parallel. This book is a lot of uh, time happening all at once, mm-hmm. essentially, because every time we get a memory, it's because something reflective is happening in the present. So it's yeah. like it's like her and Scott's whole life is going to be in condensed to these what we're on day three of present Lisey's mm-hmm. timeline. It feels like all of their history is coming back and it's more alive than it's ever been. And no yeah. reason that Blondie shouldn't be part of that. Yeah. Okay, we're gonna unpack this torture scene. Very upsetting because Lisey is She's trying to work with Dooley, and it's just not going. She did your plan. Well, I know. And I said my plan was stupid. You did. You did say that. (laughs) So she's, you know, just trying to like, hey, man, sometimes on the phone, things aren't as clear and I'm ready to work with you now. And he's telling her about being in jail. And and he mentions that uh, she has some correction coming, which just gave me Norman Daniel vibes, which I think was probably very intentional so we know like what kind of brutal this is going to be and then he says he te- he says that he's going to go as easy as he can because he doesn't want to break her spirit and this Ben to what you were saying this is scarier to, to me than just some crazy guy coming in saying I'm gonna rip your head off like so much worse than that and and anytime she's trying to work with him it makes him more like unstable and angry she's she she does, like you said, your plan says I called. Uh, he said he couldn't get a hold of you. And she uh, she's not. I mean, she knows that he couldn't get in contact. She knows all this, but she's trying to sell him on this idea. And he calls her a liar and then slaps her full force, forehand, backhand, eight, eight times. times. Like, yeah, uh. definitely Norman Daniels level of burst aggression yeah nothing she can say here is is going to matter she thinks there might be someone in there and there isn't i was so scared when i read the words after after that things happened with a speed and ferocity lisi could hardly credit i'm and okay she says something right after that she says something along the lines of she would remember it uh, exactly forever even with the even the mutilation. She mentions a yeah. mutilation, and I'm like, oh no. It, I I let myself hope for a second that she turned it around on him. I know. I, I was really hoping. Yeah. I, I was praying that it would be some something, some Deus Ex Machina happens, which normally I'm not a fan, <laughs> but that something happens and the she tears his arm off or something. I thought he was going to take one of her eyes. Oh, Christ. The, this, like, sitting here right now, my heart is it, starting it's to react. Yeah, let's go get I'm, through it. I'm going to say it. I'm going to explain what happens so you guys don't have to. Because I, I, it would be fine. Either of you could do it very well. But there's a thing in here that is commented on that I think is better coming from a woman. Absolutely. I don't want to hear those words coming. Yep, you guys agreed. Mm-hmm. Okay. He takes out a can opener. 
didn't just mm, couldn't even no. like, well, what are you going to do with that? And he apologizes to her and says, at least it's not your pussy. And what he does is he, the only way I can explain it is he uses the can opener on her bare breast. We, the way, at least it's not described. Uh, she she right. passes out. And when she wakes up, she is covered in blood and he's gone. He has unchained her and left a note saying, if you tell anyone I was here, I will kill you. Let's get this over with. You're Let's a friend, get, Zach. Yeah, you have until eight. You have until eight tomorrow, and then I'll be back. Uh, I, and, yeah. and we go from that. Like the, the next chapter opens with a line of poetry from Scott. And it's the arguments against insanity fall through with a soft, shuring sound. And we get this, and then we are confronted with the image of Lisi crawling bloody across the carpet because she's just so... She can't even, she tries to stand and her legs are too shaky. And she finds that note and and she's making her way toward the phone, thinking about calling the sheriff's office, but then she sees the cedar box lying overturned on the carpet by the stairs. He must have thought there was something useful in there and then just saw there wasn't. And she finds something important in it. From here until the end of our reading today, Lisi proves how much of a fucking hard ass she is i i can't not be constantly reminded like i think it's about here on out of rose matter and i'm just like how much Mm -hmm. of this is going to share because there's this place that you can get Mm -hmm. so i have some thoughts about what might be coming in our third episode this is also the part uh what we discussed earlier this is the quote i found it in my notes she understood she was incapable of coherence order would come later if it was needed Mm-hmm. And, yeah. yeah, the fact that at this point she 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 thinks she doesn't think of calling the cops. No, it's she mentioned thinks that she could mm-hmm. crawl to the phone, <laughs> but she knows as she's crawling, she's like, I knew the second I saw this yellow square uh fall in, fallen out because uh from the Afghan there's McCool always an extra piece had, yeah. had brought up the cedar box mm-hmm. and there's this yellow um, piece of fabric and she the second she sees it knows okay this has to happen mm-hmm. this is <laughs> this is what is and she, important she in doesn't this know moment. why or how though because she hasn't remembered yet but she this is the moment where she stops just going through this bool mm-hmm. because scott you know, is haunting her basically. Yeah. This is the part where I feel she takes agency. Yes. 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 Where she is like, no, I'm not going to call the cops so they can fuck up again. I am going to, I, even though I don't know why th- this is a leap of faith, mm-hmm. I am going to do what I believe is going to really end this. So we said, baby love. Uh, it's, it, it's, the only way out is through. Yep. And it's awesome. So we are going to go back to their stay at the Antlers because Lisi is remembering things that she hasn't forgotten, but they were behind the purple, behind the curtain. 
and she remembers that he took her someplace tropical for a few seconds under the yum yum tree. But we're not going to figure that out. We're going to go to December of 1995 for now. God damn it. I'm, dr- I'm trying. I'm sorry. No, um, when, you're not wrong. <laughs> when something started going wrong with Scott and he canceled like $300,000 worth of paid touring gigs, as you had mentioned, Ben, he had stopped writing as much and eventually, I think, completely starts drinking harder, starts drinking hard booze. She wakes up one night and he's gone and she finds him in the guest room with the Afghan sitting in the dark and she gets him back to bed and they drift off to sleep. And as she drifts, she begins to see what's described as her butterflies. What? Sure. Is, this is just, okay. Goddamn book. <laughs> it's such a weird... I honestly I don't know forgot about it. Oh, okay, listen. Yeah. I'm glad I wrote it down and listened to this. Yeah. Yeah. She sees great red and black butterflies opening their wings in the dark, something she almost always sees when she starts to fall asleep, and she thinks she'll see them in her dying time. And that thought is a little bit scary, but not as scary as she thought it would be. <sighs> I think it's around this part where uh, Stephen King, as a throwaway, writes one of the scariest ideas that I have uh, ever read. Um, on a deep existential level. It's as they are falling asleep together. She says, they fell asleep, but when they sleep, they don't go to the same place. And she fears that this is a this is a preview of death, that there is more uh. after death, but there is no one there to call you home. And I, I have goosebumps right now. <laughs> yeah, that's just that gave about me chills it. again. That is the scariest, <laughs> most depressing thought <laughs> I've ever read. This is going to make the line I was going to end on sound like nothing. <laughs> the, so before they fall asleep, Scott tells her it doesn't like him to talk, but he doesn't know what it is, which is also scary, but not as scary as what yeah. you just described. Finally, a few weeks later, Scott is gone. Lisi is remembering, like gone mentally, that there's a place he goes where the fruit is poison and there's a long boy and she's gonna have to. I knew you're. I, when I it's, typed that, I'm okay. like, I should call it something else. Or ben is gonna giggle. Yes. It is one of the scariest things. The long, but it's yeah. still called the long boy, yeah. and that's funny. I certainly would not fuck with the long boy. <laughs> so she's gonna have to go to this place she can't quite remember to help him. And we find out they talked more about it that night after the yum yum tree while they were still at the antlers. And she asked him about Paul, which seemed like a safe thing to do because that was his good older brother, not his abusive dad. And we also find out here that Paul can't travel to this place that Scott can go. At one time, we'll find out later, he could. But Scott can, and he takes him there to heal after the bench incident. And this is a place he calls Booyah Moon. Cool name. Well, and then we get... It's a weird name. I don't know how I feel about it. (laughs) uh, It it fits in with the other uh, terms of phrase. Yeah. And a, a little, just a little bit we get that we'll have to like circle around to five times later is that <laughs> Scott would take Paul there when he was hurt and when he was dead, but he couldn't take him there when he was bad gunky. <sighs> so he starts explaining to Lisi that while his dad did kill Paul, it wasn't murder. It was a mercy killing basically is how they come to talk about it. Paul got the bad gunky, but there was too much for their dad to cut and let out. And before we get to that... Okay, before we're with Paul and Scott as kids, I have to explain that because I work with kids and I work with a lot of abused children, I think that's ruined me in a lot of ways for reading things like this. Mm. I can only think, I can only take it literally and think of it, the real life implications Mm -hmm. and not like 
any part of this being true or fantasy. It is the reason why this part is so goddamn scary. Mm. Because I I was just about to ask, is this a mercy killing? Is this real? There's no way of knowing because the madness in the Landon family, the very obvious Mm -hmm. deep mental illness of his father, and the fact that Scott is 10. Yeah, when this happens. How much Mm -hmm. of this, if it weren't for the fact of there's an alternate world and Scott's (laughs) out whatever, this is just the story of a father locking his child in a basement for weeks while the child is having a mental health emergency. It is so (sighs) deeply fucked. uh, And it's so effective. It's so... Mm -hmm. So unpleasant. It's so haunting. It's because it does leave you with those questions. You can't help, even though we've we will see Booyah Moon. I still can't tell you how I feel definitively. It doesn't help that Booyah Moon is all like half metaphor. Sure, it is like it's metaphor come to life Mm -hmm. because everything in Booyah Moon is just like an exaggerated idea. Of something else uh, in our world, it's. I, like I it. feel I the like exact same. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm going to point out the things that are are towing the line of fantasy, just mm-hmm. just so that we can okay. think about those. It's a cold winter day, and Scott's going downstairs to help his dad with the wood. Paul's sitting at the table with a math book. Scott is like three steps from the bottom of the stairs when Paul turns around and looks at him, and things happen instantly here. He says Paul's eyes are no longer blue, they are blood red, and he's full of the bad gunky, and he lunges at Scott instantly, and Scott reacts instantly too because he recognizes immediately what it is, and he knows that he has to move fast. Paul actually manages to grab his legs, he's pulling Scott, Scott's grabbing onto the banister, and he lets himself scream for his dad once and then closes his mouth to save his energy. Paul only gets a handful of pants in his untied shoes. He falls back, and in the time it takes for him to get up and lunge at Scott again, Scott's trying to crawl further up the steps. His father comes in behind him. He had been hauling wood in, and he hits Paul very hard in the head with the wood to knock him out. So it's just really sad during all of this because with all the love Scott's shown when talking about Paul with Lisi before— and all the terrible things he's described as his dad doing, Paul's that it's just even more sad that Paul's bad gunky yeah. is like the real deal, not the, the stuff his dad goes through. Like Scott makes a distinction. This is not like my father. My father's tame compared to this. He's sane compared to Paul right now. The thing that gave me chills and still does thinking about it is when uh, he says after this moment, he or it's during the struggle, he realizes that when he saw his brother downstairs with his book, he wasn't waiting for mm-hmm. him. He was lying in wait yes. for him. And that's a very important it's distinction. Horrible. And it's so fucking scary. So we are going to go down to the cellar. They end up dragging Paul down there and tying him up. And when he starts to come to, their dad chokes him back to unconsciousness. And Scott's, you know, going back and forth from being terrified to trying to help his brother and... It's acknowledged that Scott is special, but he doesn't say it like that. But his dad knows that he's been able to make Paul better, help him heal. And he's not sure if if the bad gunky like this can get better. But they've just got to try something. So the, the way he explains it, though, he doesn't just say that he's made him better with the healing, but with a lot of things. 
So I'm, I was wondering if it wasn't just Scott helping him heal after his dad cut him, if Paul has had like minor episodes of bad gunky this whole time, because what else has he had to quote help him with? That was important. Or, oh, and I also wondered, like, did going to Booyah Moon slow the process of Paul getting the bad gunky? Well, Maybe, again, I'm reading too much into because it. Because Scott wonders the opposite, if that he caused this by taking Paul well, into yes. Booyah Moon. Well, you can Moon. get good things there and bad. Yeah. So it might have had a slowing effect, but then some... Okay, anyway, doesn't matter. We don't know right now. Uh, Scott is told to go out to the shed and get the chains so that when tractor Paul, chains. Yeah, when and Paul comes to... If you never lifted a tractor chain, let me fucking tell you. <laughs> no, and we'll, yeah, we'll talk about this scene in a moment, but before he can leave the cellar, Paul comes to and he gives Scott an impossible grin. And so I'm like wondering if this is real or imagined. You know, is Scott imagining this? Everything is exaggerated because he says the grin stretches almost to his ears. Yeah, there, there's so much like... Demonic possession. And his dad says he'll mesmerize you. He'll mesmerize you. He says that we have to chain him up fast because if he's left alone down there with Paul, (sighs) he will climb the walls and skitter across the ceiling and wear uh, Sparky down. Until he is yeah. weak enough oh, to be felled. Sparky's their dad. We've yeah, yeah. we haven't that. said his name. <laughs> and then Paul lets out an inhuman roar. And then later we see physical changes that can't be possible. But do you guys want to talk about the very tense next few moments of securing Paul? And Scott has to go get these chains and then come back inside. Yeah, uh, the rope is not going to hold and Scott realizes that when he sees Paul wake up that first time and sees how hard he's pulling. So he's racing out there because his dad essentially says, go get the chains, bring him back because if I will have to shoot him otherwise. And so every moment he is thinking, I might hear a gunshot at any second if I don't hurry up. Mm-hmm. He almost crushes his foot, dropping the wheelbarrow full of chains on his own foot, but gets to the house And thankfully, his dad is at the back door and is able to grab the front end. And they work quickly and as a team to Mm -hmm. chain not only chain Paul with these chains to the like center support support pole. And with a they fashion one into like a choke collar. Mm -hmm. And they chain him to the table. A table with like a 500 pound printing press that Paul used to publish Scott's first stories. Mm -hmm. So not personal at all. And it's hard too when he comes, when he sees Paul again after they bring these chains down, he sees that his dad has has gone at him again. Mm-hmm. And one of his teeth is laying on his shirt and he's all bloody. Paul stays this way for three weeks during Christmas and that New Year's. Reveal, that's, yeah. That reveal of they're like, yeah, and three weeks later it was still like this. And was like, oh, fuck. And it's during and then we find out during those three weeks, Scott was alone while his dad went to work with what he describes as it. And this is so sad because when it's just the two of them, Paul will try to talk to him like he's normal and tell him he has a good bull. But Scott knows better than to listen. But sometimes he does listen because he it lets him pretend that Paul is still there. And I wanted to cry reading that. He's 10 years old. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, fucking A. The, what's happening to Paul in the cellar, you know, he's just using the toilet on the floor. Mm-hmm. He, so there's just poop everywhere. I was 
almost upset because he he Scott's telling the story and he says you could see the the range of uh-huh. his life mm-hmm. by this this arc of turds. And for a second, I was like, that is not the time for your bullshit, Scott. <laughs> Until I realize he is speaking very literally. Yeah. That he walks to as far as the chains will let him go and then then goes. And that's very important for later because that arc moves further out because he's he is pulling so hard on the table and the beam that the beam is bending and the, they can see where the table has been pulled along the floor and there are scratches. So he has a lot of strength, even though he's not eating, like he'll eat like meat mm-hmm. and stuff, but not vegetables. So he's becoming malnourished. He's not getting enough nutrients. He's not getting any sunlight. And so his body is starting to deteriorate and also physically changing. I, Sorry for this part, but his penis is different. Like it's yeah, weird because he he's like half naked. That. Yeah, and his feet, his um, feet are like a little cloven. Like yeah, like kinda. they're changing. Yeah. the The other thing that was really striking is that we we finally come to the end of this three week time, and we find out that Scott has tried to take Paul over a couple of times. And it's always been, they have to drug him to sleep, basically. Like, the dad is putting tranquilizers in his meat, and he can't take him because he describes it as as like having an anvil or a piano tied to his back. And he realizes that it's because he's knocked out. He doesn't, it's just an, an, an intuition well, it's, that he it's has. It's because, it, well, I think it's because he has this whatever it is inside of him. Mm-hmm. It's not, yeah. it's, it's the bad gunky that is weighing him down. Oh, I, well, I'm just mentioning he he thinks it's because he's asleep, because his oh. plan is to have his dad not knock him out completely, let him be kind of lucid, and he's going to try to take him over and see if he can actually do it then. And so their, back, their plan is, because his dad's like, I won't be on the other side to help you, and he's if he doesn't kill you on the way there, he'll kill you when you get there. So he gives him a needle with drugs in it to use as soon as they get to the other side. And that's not how it works. <laughs> it get he is very close. I hate it that as he's telling Lisi this ending of how Paul died, that he says it, it wasn't until he's telling her in that moment that he realizes it wasn't his fault. Cause he thinks, because I, I wanted to try again and because I wanted to try and Paul wasn't sedated enough and he would have killed me, my dad had to kill him and it's my fault. So dad is standing behind him and Scott goes over to Paul. And as soon as he gets up next to him, Paul rears his head back and his mouth opens impossibly wide to his breastbone is how Scott describes it. And as he's going in for the lunge, his dad puts the shotgun in his face and pulls the trigger and Paul is dead. And once he's dead, his body reverts to normal. Yeah, he doesn't have the weird it's, penis and feet it's anymore. The were- it's a werewolf situation yeah. where it, now that it's over, he just looks like a malnourished, yeah. mistreated child. Mm. And Scott has that moment of questioning. Yeah. Did this happen? Yeah, did this happen? Yeah. And his father's certainty infects him. Mm. And, and he... They both know that they have to do something Mm -hmm. with his body. So Scott knows that this time he can take him over 
and he takes him there and he buries him. And as Scott tells Lisi that that's what happened, she she actually realizes that she had glimpsed this burial place when they popped over under the yum yum tree for a moment because Paul is buried on Sweetheart Hill. He asks Lisi if she wants to go visit his grave. Um, she's going to, but first, <laughs> we're going to pop back with her in the study, injured, laying on the floor. Her mind is screaming at her not to remember when a real voice yells up at her. It's Deputy Alston coming to check on her. And instead of getting help, she's like, fuck your donut, yeah. go away, I'm fine. <laughs> Lisi's fucking badass. I like that she is proud of how calm and level her voice is. And then at a certain point is like, you have to fucking go or else I'm not going to be able to keep this up. Yeah, it's very tense. I'm mm-hmm. breezing over it horribly. But <laughs> we find out what the purple is. It's a curtain hiding memories that she doesn't want to remember to protect her. And we spend just enough time with her in the present for her to make an agonizing trip across the study to a bottle of expired Excedrin and some water. So now we are going to go back to the winter night. Scott goes catatonic, and she's remembering that he took her over after telling her about Paul. And she realizes that he may be holding the way open for her now, and she can get to him if she figures out kind of how to walk through that. Before we follow that, we're back in the present with Lisi, who's made her way from the study to the house. And she's thinking about what she needs to get done because Dooley's going to come back. And first, she's going to use Paul's healing remedy, the tea, mm-hmm. adding the square of the afghan to it. So she's made she's made her way upstairs to the bathroom and gets to see the damage, which is not just to her breast. She's all beaten up and bruised, and her nose is crooked, and her lips are swollen. Yeah, she thinks her nose is crooked, but she doesn't think it's broken. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't think that's don't how that works. that. <laughs> She also grabs a spade and realizes that she has to rip down the purple curtain. And she does. What did you guys think of this moment when she tears down the curtain? I was excited that we were like, again, Ben, you you said agency earlier. And I think that's a perfect example of what it is here. Like, this is a physical representation of her it being enough. And we mm-hmm. know that she... It says earlier that she knew that she'd gone too far to turn back, Mm -hmm. but this is the moment where she is not. Okay, let's go. Yeah, she is. She is now she's accepted. She's on this path. This is the moment where she's going to charge her path down. it. Can I dump all the beautiful things that this moment talks about on you guys? Take a beautiful dump. And I'm going to use the word dump like right before. Josh, no. What? (laughs) I'm going to take a beautiful dump. There it is. (laughs) All right. See, I'm no. <laughs> well, you tell me at the end if it was beautiful. <laughs> Doug, stop. I hate this okay. podcast. <laughs> and okay, so she, how she tears down the curtain, like this is what's described as is happening when she does that and her remembering. So first, the memory is when Scott took her. They they initially were in bed naked, and there was this brilliant light. And then they were it they were in Booyah Moon naked on top of the hill of flowers with an orange moon bloated and burning cold with the sun sinking below the other boiling crimson house of fire moon. And as she remembers this, she cries out for joy for what was remembered and grief for what was gone. And her heart was mended even as it was broken again. And she thinks when she sees that beauty that they were never made for such beauty and they should have died then in each other's arms like lovers in a story. Fucking awesome. Oh my God. I've never heavy sighed so much on an episode. <laughs> They're on the other side. Scott's telling her, can't stay long because it's getting dark and it's not safe after dark. 
but he wants to show her Paul's grave. This needle is still there, intact, which is like, who knows That's what time. That's so fucking does. sad, though, because he, he uh-huh. leaves it because he didn't have anything personal to leave yeah. when he buried him. And that's the most personal thing he had. And we find out he dug the grave with his bare hands until it started to get dark and he started to hear the laughing. And Lisi tells him she understands, like at this point, like, I get why you don't want kids now. And if, if even if you change your mind, we could still talk about it. Because there was Paul, but there was also you. But we're we're never going to talk after this. She's like, we're never going to talk about Gomers or Bad Gunky or this place ever again. And she says that she doesn't ever want to be here again because it's so beautiful. She thinks it'll drive her mad. And so he he finishes his story telling her that he had to leave because it got dark and he got sick for like a week, had a fever. And when he comes back, he tried to take a shovel with, but it wouldn't go. And he had to take like a plastic toy, toy shovel, sandbox shovel, and Wh- that's what he used, to which is the not grave. explained, but is a really interesting thing to think of. Like, what yeah. are the rules of what can come and go? Because mm-hmm. you think m- maybe it has something to do with like the childlike nature of. Only yeah, children, but maybe. that doesn't but then follow. Why can some things go and some things not come back. Yeah, because later on, the Afghan it's, is is uh, goes with Scott in 1996, but also still exists in our world. It, it's all so interesting. They can't bring it back. Yeah, it and is interesting. I, I would like to take this moment now that we have entered Booyah Moon to head people off the past. Uh, King fans love making connections. You know, we all love yep. it. This is not the territories, y'all. <laughs> no. Not even, no. Cl- it can't be, because Scott and Paul grew up in Pennsylvania. When they switched over, where did they switch over to? Sweetheart Hill. When they're in yep. New Hampshire, they switch over the mm-hmm. same place. So I want to know how much of this place is there. Does that make sense? Yeah. It, is it a whole it world? It feels or very is finite. It, yeah, is it, it does, island? right? I, yeah, it, it feels there's something about it that does not feel like an entire it feels thought like, out. Like, I was going to say, it feels universe. like an unfinished thought of a place yes. that exists. Yes. It is It is the one of the most dreamlike places mm-hmm. King has brought us. Mm-hmm. I love it. Lisi sees something through the trees that turns out to be a sign Paul made when he could still come over on his own sometimes. That's all we get about that. It just says, to the pool. Scott shows it to Lisi and laughs. And then other things start laughing with him. <laughs> and she also keeps hearing this bell that sounds familiar. And she's starting to get super freaked out. And I can't I can't do justice to how the sounds she hears are described. But it's so fascinatingly scary to read about this beautiful place change as the sun's going down. I'm so glad that the bell turns out to be something from their marriage previously. Instead of what I thought was going to happen, the second she was like, I hear this bell that I've heard before. I was like, are we going to find out more about her childhood and that she also had been in this place? Oh. Which I feel like would not, that would would have been a cop out, I feel like. Because we've been doing the Silent Hill streams, I thought the bell was signaling the change of this place. Ah. (laughs) So she asks Scott what the laughers are and he says something I never want to be said to me in real life other than look under the bed. He doesn't know what they are, and they run on all fours, but sometimes they stand up like people and look around. 
They're meerkats. <laughs> that's what that's the description of a meerkat. Yeah. Okay. Uh, a meerkat stand- that laughs. Yeah, I was gonna say, a meerkat that a, stands up like a human being and screams. Imagine oh, a, imagine a meerkat, but with my laugh. Oh uh, no. Okay. <laughs> she she wants to go and Scott tells her to help him by visualizing their their room. And she does, and he tells her that she's a champ at it, and then they're back. And the next day she Thought about asking him about the sign to the pool, but she doesn't need to because she knows that the pool is the pool that he's talked about. Going to the pool and where you get your ideas and everything, but it's it's not a myth. She's actually been there and you follow the path that leads to the fairy forest and past the bell tree and the graveyard to get there. And she remembers that she went back to get him, but we don't find out about that yet. So she's trying to figure out present day if she can go back on her own without Scott And the thought scares her because it leads to another question. What if he's now one of these shrouded figures that she casually mentions? I nearly cried while they while she was remembering their life together and the thought of his arms around her Mm -hmm. and the smell of him and his cheek against hers and that she'd sell her soul for no more than the sound of him down the hall, slamming the door, yelling, hey, Lisey, I'm home. Everything the same, which is what he always used to say when he got home love story guys (laughs) fuck she thinks they don't tell you a lot about death how long it takes for the ones you love most to die in your heart it's a secret and it should be because who would ever love another person if they knew how hard it was how in your heart they only die a little at a time she's having second thoughts about going in case it's night there and laughing things and the long boy and she realizes too late that she's there <laughs> I love this. Yeah. <laughs> I it, I love that they're building this up, and this could absolutely have been one of those king things where the this is what the rest of the fucking book mm-hmm. is about, and we don't end up at the big final confrontation in Booyah Moon until the last mm-hmm. fifty pages, and then she closes her eyes. And all of a sudden, the light she is seeing through her eyes is different. And she yells out loud, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. <laughs> yeah. I I love that, that it, it, it's so scary. Mm-hmm. That idea of like, oh, there's this other world and it's so close that you can do it on accident. Yes. <laughs> it's, it gave me back rooms in a major yeah. way. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So while she's there, she takes the time to straighten Paul's grave marker, even though it's twilight and she probably doesn't have the time, a thing she did last time she was there, too, because we are (laughs) this is confusing. We are with her now on her fourth trip. Let's talk about what she does here on her fourth trip. She makes her way down the, the path to the pool and finds the bell tree where she sees that Scott has stolen the bell from a diner she used to work in Mm -hmm. that the cook used to piss her off the way he'd ding it and yell at her, and he has taken it and tied it to this tree. (laughs) Uh, This last chapter, I actually uh, listened to. Yeah? And the the cook's name was Chucky G, Mm -hmm. but every time they, they say it, in the audiobook, I saw it. She was saying Chuck E. Cheese. It did sound like <laughs> It does sound that. like yeah. Chuck E. Cheese <laughs> is the thing. I'm very curious because here she feels the instinct to leave the silver spade at the mm-hmm. tree and does it. And now I'm very confused. <laughs> we should mention, too, she's here the fourth time, but we're going to pop back and forth between the third and fourth time. Mm-hmm. Sure. So do we just want to talk about the third time when she gets Scott? Yes. Yes. Okay. 
in the fourth time, she's walking down the path and remembering everything about the third time to kind of complete the cycle. When she like reaches the pool, Mm -hmm. the last of the memories comes back to her. Yes. And she knows that the pool is safe, but a sad place because it's about imagination, but also giving in, losing yourself forever. And she sees Scott sitting on a bench and she's going to him and she thinks she needs to hurry because if they're still here when the sun sets and she gets to see the reflection of the moon on the pool surface that she will become fascinated and they'll be stuck there forever. There are people on benches. Stone benches that 2,000 people could be. <laughs> it, it's so different. Yeah, because you, you hear about the pool. I was expecting a small wild spring or yep. something. Oh, there's a beach, benches. It, yeah, It is an enormous arena the, uh, around this deep, mile deep mm-hmm. pool dark souls it, it's so goddamn <laughs> dark souls it, with these these shrouded figures everywhere there, there are other people in quotes yeah. here they're like 80 ish people milling about some of them Silently. are in the water in the water yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it is so just that feeling of like grim uh, I was like, why are there so many fucking people? Unknowable. Well, yeah, you don't expect there. You just expect it to be Scott and Lisa. Yeah. yeah. If if you've ever played any of the Dark Souls or Bloodborne games, there you have this feeling because they don't explain anything in these games. You are just thrown into these environments that you get this incredible sense of dread. And like, you know, these places you are at, they're there's so much history and there's darkness here, but you aren't given that. It, it is just the the vibe of the place, and this this gives mm-hmm. me Dark Souls yeah. uh, vibes, and I love it. So there's the other thing that will come up later. Um, they see a guy who Scott knows was in a car accident as as she's trying to get Scott to talk, and he starts talking more and more, and he's going into the pool, but Scott tells her it might. The damage done to him might be too deep for the pool to heal him. Fucking crazy. So she's trying to get him to come home and he's responsive, but not really. He's just sort of like, you go, just leave me here. Like he's given up. And Lisi has a plan for stopping that shit. It's fucking ballsy. It's so great. She realizes that it's almost nightfall. And she says, all right, fine. If you don't want to come home, then I'm going to go home. I'm going to take the path back and go home that way. And he says, he says, don't. And then she gets up and walks and she thinks when she turns around, she's going to see him behind her. She turns back and he's still sitting there. (sighs) And she's like, well, I'm pot committed. I've bet every single facet of my existence on this and I'm going. And he yells out a second time. This time she doesn't turn around. And then just as she's about to reach the edge of the forest, he grabs her on the shoulders that he's come to rescue her like she knew he would. Because that's what Scott does. Fucking awesome. And it's a very scary scene when he comes to rescue her because he's basically like all of a sudden behind her grabbing her and saying, don't move, (laughs) don't make a sound. And she senses all of these things in the forest around them. Th- this, th- th- uh, this, <laughs> the this is the moment where we see, right? Yeah. Yep. The the thing with the piebald sides. Holy hell! Holy shit! I. It is yeah. a 
wall of meat Ugh. 50 feet from where they're standing. An endless, that there's no, you can't see and it's what it is. As a, and, a high river of meat because of how, like, the flow to it. She, and, she pictures it as a worm, but she then immediately stops herself and says, that thing's not a worm. Tremors. It is so much worse than a graboid it's so much worse it's so intensely scary to me Mm -hmm. and uh it it, it's something that something you said earlier in this episode josh that made me realize just what it is it's uh it's suicide it's suicidal depression because it has stalked scott his entire life it is that like tortured artist thing yeah, he, of, he says that he mm-hmm. has come close to meeting with this thing three separate times and it can come to him and, if he calls and it. it comes exactly and the thing that you said earlier josh that made me go fuck or maybe you said it cm i'm sorry um i i don't know uh is when they were in bed and scott said it doesn't like me to talk mm-hmm. yeah because i don't know what it is that is as someone who has suffered from uh, deep, dark depressions, before I realized it, before I realized, oh, oh this is what depression mm-hmm. is, It's it, it makes that you feeling, feel yeah. trapped in yourself. It is that feeling of, I feel like I want to die, but I can't express it because I don't have the words for it. I don't have the words <laughs> for it because it's a giant river of meat. And it's and not part it's of so this terrible. place, even though it's in it. it it's... It, like I said, the, wow. the whole place is like something brought to life by it's, dozens it's of people thoughts. who have, yeah, this ability. I, I don't know. I, I do want to jump back to something. Uh, I, God, this episode's going to be so fucking long. Yeah. But this is masterful writing on King's part. So in the uh, third trip, Lisey doesn't have anything on her feet because she yes, her, her slippers didn't go over, and she. Before this conversation with Scott happens, she is walking on the beach and the feel of the sand on her bare feet brings her back to a memory, which turns into a fantasy, which she then comes to sitting on the bench looking at the water. And I <laughs> yeah, was like, it's wild. Holy fuck. It's awesome. And, and you don't notice it because King has been doing it to us this entire book with the way her memories jump around that we just followed that train of thought like, yeah, this is where the book goes. Ugh. And then didn't realize until it was too late that. It was almost too late. Yeah, (laughs) it was fucking crazy. What a long road. (laughs) I'm glad you mentioned that because I I wanted to, but it's like, I don't know how the fuck to squeeze this in. (laughs) Okay, so Scott is telling her that they have to go now and she needs to concentrate as hard as she can on the guest room. And she's thinking about the rocker and the TV playing the last picture show. And they're stuck. And Scott says he thinks it's the Afghan. Some things double, like you were saying earlier, Ben, and could go one way but can't go back the other, so they have to leave it, which they do. And we're going to pop over, just so I don't get totally lost in my notes, to present-day Lisi, who, as she's remembering this, has made it to the pool, and she has gone in, and she is to her knees now so that her wounds can be submerged. And it hurts like crazy and then thinks in this moment she needs to hurry because the long boy might come back and it probably doesn't have to follow the rules of other dangerous things here, like the beach and the pool being a safe place Love because that. it's different. Love it. And before she leaves, she remembers 
Scott Amanda that morning in bed <laughs> telling her she gets a prize when she finds the bull and it's a drink. So she puts her head to what she's described as the hot pool. And when she takes two quick swallows, the water's cold. And she has this thought that she could keep drinking and drinking, but she knows that that's dangerous and stops. So we are back with her and Scott when she brings him home from Booyah Moon on the third trip. And they're back in the room and something strange has happened with the TV and the tape he'd been watching. It kicks so yes. much ass. This entire time, every time she thinks about the last picture show, she thinks about Hank Williams and playing the song Jambalaya. Is that what she... I think yeah. so, yeah. And that's what comes to her mind. So that's what she thinks about. But in the movie, it is Hank Williams, but it's a fully different song. So when they pop back, the house is freezing cold because the storm has knocked out all the power, but the TV and VCR are still playing. That scene with the wrong song is playing, and Scott's like, I've seen this movie a million times. This isn't it. And then it dies. And then later when he goes back to watch it, there's a 10-minute stretch of that movie that's been erased. So Lisi fucking amazing. Did that. Whatever has reality yeah. warping powers, yeah. I guess. <laughs> I guess. Well, it, maybe that's part of the the boom back yeah. to our side. So we're we're going to wrap up here in a minute. Um Scott tells her that he's okay now, like legit okay. And it could it might not happen again, but he's definitely felt it twice before like we mentioned in the, the two sections of his life that previously <laughs> we have been told about mm -hmm. where all of the symptoms of the bad gunky is just depression. Yeah, the the greenhouse in Germany. Mm. And uh, also that the long boy could follow Scott and get him. But he's, it's basically described as he's like, don't worry, though. He's not going to follow me here because it's kind of lazy. <laughs> Cause, yeah, because it's fucking lazy. <laughs> and he also mentions that he thinks there's something light, the well, I'm going to say the white, protecting mm. him. Something good watching out for him and that Lisey's part of it. And he could call the long boy and she tells him to stay with her. And he says, I will as long as I can. And she is now completed the memory cycle. She is present day Lisey laying in bed from her trip to the pool, completely soaked and she thinks that as she was leaving on this fourth trip, she had seen one of the shrouded things that she thinks might have been her husband. And that was the last time she'll ever get to see him. He's an unburied corpse there. And she lets herself cry and grieve for him for a few minutes, which is where we wrap up our reading for this episode. Lucy. <laughs> See, like she is in such a place to start kicking so much ass. She, she yeah. says she's like she has never felt more ready to fucking kick ass. And <laughs> that wait. rules. I have to say, this story has taken such a sharp turn to being like Rose a matter. great, great. Girl. I don't know what the fuck the rest of this book is. Yeah, no fucking idea. I have no guesses. Wait, no, I did have one guess that I teased earlier. I think there's a small chance um, we're going to find out that Scott is kind of unstuck in time. Interesting. There are several parts that there's this idea of like the insanity falling through. Mm -hmm. she, she keeps saying this from one of his poems. And there's this feeling of all of these times circling around each other and them all falling through each other there is a point where i believe unless i 
completely read this incorrectly, where something happens and she hears Scott yell her name from a different mm, time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She, yeah. She blows her away in her and memory. And then that was the other thing is that earlier in the first <sighs> part when she sees him on that weird carpet and he notices her. So I, I it would explain how he's been setting this up yeah. through the whole thing. We uh, are told that the pool, if you stare into it long enough, you will see whatever you want. Mm. So what if the reason Scott is had such is he has stared into the pool and seen what's going to happen what's to her. going to happen wow. and he has set all of this up to like oh, keep her safe yeah. he's obviously set all of this up so she can bring zach here to kill him right? yeah, we can only fucking hope that's my i assume theory. yeah the spade burying him under the bell tree mm-hmm. like that's i i i bet we she's gonna the, ring his bell I, hey-o. <laughs> very nice thanks i we're gonna see him sinking to the bottom of the pool you think? I, I think that's... Oh, don't I hope we pool. feed him to the long boy. Oh. Oh, that'd be cool, too. <laughs> or ripped apart by laughers. Josh, calm I'll your take cats. what I can get. Right. That's it for this episode of Dairy Public Radio. As always, thank you for listening. Join us for our next episode, where we will be finishing Lisey's story. For CM Alexander and Benjamin Graham, this is Joshua Khan reminding you, you want to be good for the ones you love, because you know that your time with them will end up being too short, no matter how long it is. Hey everyone, CM Alexander here. Thank you for listening to Lisey's Story Part 2. We hope you enjoyed it. I have a bit for you that didn't make this show, but first, if you haven't already, please take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts because it really helps us out. And if you have done that, thank you so much for your rating and review. And as always, follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Dairy Public Radio and Twitter at Dairy Public. Don't forget to check out our Etsy page for awesome merchandise and our Patreon page for bonus episodes and sometimes early releases, too. I hope you enjoy. Two words. <laughs> I'm going to derail this entirely. Can I tell you guys a very stupid story about oh, my absolutely. childhood? Sure. Please I do. used to have a captain's bed. What the is fuck a, is a captain's bed? A captain's bed, bed is bed. Oh, it's like a car bed, but it's shaped like a captain? Exactly. You spoiled okay. bitch. <laughs> <laughs> it is, it's a bed, and under the bed are these giant pull-out drawers. Oh, yeah, I got so, one of those. Yeah, okay. It's a captain's I bed. I have a captain's bed. You do. Everyone. You spoiled bitch. <laughs> <laughs> but when I was little, I found out that I could pull the drawer all the way out crawl in behind <laughs> oh, no. and then put the drawer back in because there was a open space. You are not claustrophobic at all. I'm absolutely not okay. claustrophobic <laughs> at all. But I would hide, pull it back in there and then I'd yell for my mom <laughs> and then she'd run in my room and I'm gone. It's a good bit. God, and then I'd like wait until she was gone and I'd get out. <laughs> I'd walk out and be like, oh, Mom, I yelled for you. I'm what if that you... was what Scott's been doing? <gasps> oh, my God. It never he's just hiding kind of under the bed. All right. Oh, we cracked it. So we in the next day, she gets this note, look uh, under the bed, and she <laughs> looks under the bed, and Scott's under there. No, stop <laughs> it. I don't like this. I'm so sorry. Okay, uh, continue. Uh, I'm going to take Is my bed the... off my sp- my frame and just put it on the floor tonight. <laughs> I, I'm going to give your mom a hug next time I see her. Okay. That's all for now, listeners. Goodbye. <laughs>